Ahi ahi Marielle and Freeman and for Wallace Chapman on the panel. With me today, Ruani Pereira, a journalist on the Hui, and Patrick Smelly, who's a founder and now managing editor of Business Desk. Welcome back, getting lots of feedback, you two on the masks. So we'll share some of that with the listeners later on. This hour is bigger, always better. What's the ideal population size of Aotearoa, New Zealand? Seven million? Ten, maybe. Text 2101 with your thoughts. I have to say, glancing through the text so far, the vibe is definitely fewer is better. Thank you very much. Three in five of us experienced a spike in attempted scams in the last year. Were you one of them? No shame. Many of the scammers are super sophisticated. Others, not so much, of course. The promise of a multi-million dollar lottery win or an unexpected inheritance or a loving relationship. Wouldn't that be nice? Text 2101 with your cautionary tale. What exactly constitutes bullying in the workplace? So many of us just live with it. So many of us are the bullies but might not realise that our behaviour is unacceptable. Gina Murphy from Working Wise will join us later and cruise ships will be returning to our ports en masse. Hospitality and retail might be super excited, but what about the rest of us? It's now nine minutes past four. Tired of waiting for action, the government has today laid down an ultimatum to the supermarket duopoly. Open up your wholesale arms to would-be competitors at a fair price or else. It's given countdown and foodstuffs a year to reach substantial agreement with wholesale customers or be forced to sell at prices set through a regulator. A year, though, feels like a long time when the cost of living is so painfully high. Professor of Agricultural Economics at Lincoln University, Alan Rennick, joins me. Kia ora, Alan. Good afternoon. Let's go over the main points in that case, or the ones that you think are the most important from the announcement today. Well, I think it's an interesting announcement today because I think it goes beyond, actually, what the Commerce Commission were recommending in uh, their their study, which reported earlier this year, they were suggesting a voluntary um, opening up of wholesale markets to um, to other retailers. But I think the government are concerned that that won't be enough to uh, encourage uh, the supermarkets to do so, and so they are pushing for this, uh, uh, giving them the opportunity to do it voluntarily, but then use the stick of regulation to try and get them to make sure that they do after this. Do you think it will be enough of a stick to get them to um, take action on this? It's it's very difficult, I think, because the um, the, the question is in the detail of how how this will work. I mean, yes, yes, they could they can comply in a number of different ways, but those ways may have different implications for improving competition. I mean, they could apply by the law in a way by allowing um, access. Uh, it's the terms and conditions of those access that really will um, indicate whether or not it's going to improve uh, competition. And at the end, as, as consumers, I guess what we're concerned with, will it lower the prices for us? And um, so, yes, it may encourage them to, to engage, but the nature of that engagement is still not really clear, I think. Well, that was inevitably my next question. Is this going to make any difference at all to our pockets? Well, it Potentially, if, if it worked in the way that it was intended, um, it could open up um, competition. Um, one of the barriers uh, very clearly identified in the Commerce Commission was other, other retail outlets weren't able to come in because they didn't have access to this wide range of products at reasonable prices that the two main supermarkets had. So potentially, if they were able to get access to those at the same prices as the as the retail 
um, giants, then potentially that could increase competition. And if that competition worked effectively and they were efficient, they could potentially lower the price to consumers. But I, I think there's a lot of ifs in there. The government clearly will be hoping that the uh, two big operators will toe the line and sooner rather than later. Do you think they will move quickly on this or do you think they might just stretch it out to closer to the end of that year's grace that they've been given? Yeah, well, I guess there's two ways to look at it. I think there's quite a lot involved for them as well in actually in, in complying with this. During the investigation, I mean, they made it clear that, you know, they're not set up to be a widespread wholesale organization. They're set up to supply their own chains, you know, their own supermarkets. So to move from a situation of just being set up to supply your own to being a, a, you know, a much wider wholesaler, it does involve quite a lot of um, work and effort on, on their part. So um, even if it took a while, it could be legitimately that it does take time to set this up. But on the other hand, I guess I would imagine they would be in no rush to, to make these changes, but at the same time, probably wanting to indicate that they're on that journey um, to, I guess, appease the government. But also, you know, a lot of issues have been raised with them since, since that Commerce Commission um, report. Ruani, I want to bring you in here. As a consumer, are you all excited? Yeah. Are you anticipating smaller bills at the till already? <laughs> I'm not holding my breath, Lynn, but... Um, you know, I guess the government, it's, it's, a, it's a hard juggling act for them, isn't it? The optics are they've got to look like they're doing something about it, like with the petrol pumps and, and, and looking at the, um, the gas companies as well. And so they are, you know, in this grocery cop, you know, the new grocery cop on the block as well. It looks like they're doing something. But I think what really is needed to increase competition is, is a new player, a disruptor, if you like. Alan, what you know? What are you? What are your thoughts on an Aldi or something like that coming to New Zealand? Yeah, no, no I definitely was making the point. Um, I was in the UK and Ireland before before I came here, and what really changed the landscape in Ireland was the arrival of the Aldi and Lidl. Those low cost um, supermarkets really changed the nature of of competition here. And so, you know, they've got to Australia, but they haven't come across. Um, the Tasman. So really what, what's stopping them is kind of interesting. But one thing with those, those is they have their own wholesale organizations as well. So opening up wholesale wouldn't probably yeah. encourage those more in, but they may, it may have an impact of encouraging a, another domestic. You know, there are people waiting the wings who say they, they want you know, funding to set up these extra chains. So it might encourage a domestic person, uh, you know, entity in. Patrick, how are you? This is entirely in your wheelhouse, isn't it? Well, how are you reading the announcement today and what it might mean? Well, I think it's, it's generous of Alan to say that he's found anything new in it. I, I think what we're seeing at the moment is that the government's getting pretty good at re-announcing stuff uh, and that it's, it's determined to keep announcing things that sound as if it's doing what it can to combat inflation. That's really, you know, we saw that a little bit with the Kiwi Bank announcement this week that it was about keeping competitive pressure on the Australian-owned banks, when in fact, actually, really, Kiwi Bank was taken back into the fold because uh, circumstances, com commercial circumstances dictated it. I, I, I was in Australia on the trade mission with the Prime Minister last month, uh, and a lot of officials over there involved in this stuff particularly involved in getting Costco to come to New Zealand, quite adamant Aldi is not coming, and it's got to do with scale. 
So, yeah. you know, big part of the problem with New Zealand uh, across many industries, and it's a, it's a significant part of the problem in supermarkets, is just simply where it's a large country with a small number of people living in it compared to the size to its size, uh, and it's and that's one of the reasons why things are expensive. So, uh, yes, the duopoly is uh, clearly been able to milk it. And I'm sure that having worked myself in the electricity industry for a while, quite some years ago, the one thing that chills the heart of every private enterprise owner is the threat of regulation. <laughs> and so it's not that they necessarily are going to fall over themselves to cut the price of everything, but they now have this this stick being waved around. And sometimes it doesn't even matter if the stick ever lands. It's the fact that it's being waved around. that, they, that It just puts them on their toes and makes them worried. Um, Costco could make a bit of a difference, but you know, talking to the head of Costco in Australia when I was over there, the point he made was that, that uh, at best Costco could make its model work in New Zealand with only four stores, uh, so maybe two in Auckland, one in Wellington, only just in Christchurch, perhaps. You know, scale is a big issue here. I guess, Alan, just to, to round this off, the thought is that would this measure, now it has to be brought in, make any dent in the supermarket's profits, they seem pretty good at finding a workaround, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I mean, there's a whole range of ways they could <laughs> they could work around this. For example, if they if they did have to uh, open up their wholesale markets at the same rates that they, you know, at the same prices they charge their own supermarkets, they could just you know, redistribute their profits a bit between the supermarkets and the wholesale and raise the prices at the wholesale level. So there's lots of different ways, you know, they could, they could work around it. And uh, yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, the points made about the, the challenges in competition in our, our small market are, are well made. It, it, it's very hard to see, you know, how you really address that situation, given the nature of our, our small population and everything. Thank you so much. Talking to Alan Rennick, Professor of Agricultural Economics at Lincoln University. It's 18 minutes past four on the panel. Well, when it comes to New Zealand's population, how many is too many? During the peak of the pandemic, the government described us as the team of five million, while our expats, of course, argue that we are, in fact, a team of six million. After slamming shut our borders to migrant workers and then opening them a crack and now that bit more, are we looking at a big population boost over the next decade or so? Would you be happy with a team of eight million or ten million living here? Text us 2101, email the panel at rnz.co.nz. Well, Sense Partners economist Dr Curden Lees is all for opening up our immigration setting and is here to explain why. Kia ora, Curden. Uh, kia ora, Tato. What do you think New Zealand's optimum population is? Let's let's start with the big one, shall we? Yeah, it's a big question, but I think kind of really sort of misstates the issue here. And I think workers, firms and families are really best positioned to think about um, migration, whether or not you want to move to New Zealand or move away from New Zealand. I think as soon as we start thinking about, we know what the optimal population is, we know it's five, six, seven or eight million, and we seem to kind of, you know, if a government sort of sets that kind of a target, all of a sudden we kind of crush those kind of micro decisions that firms and families can make in their own best interests. Well, let's have a look at the immigration setting then. Is it adequate now or what would you do if you were actually in charge of it? Well, one of the risks that I see is this um, GPS or this this policy statement around the policy target that's been promoted by the Productivity Commission. And that really says that there's a specific growth rate or a specific number that we might want to get to. 
And they kind of suggest that that's kind of a good thing for a government to actually suggest, and that would allow us to better match sort of population growth to the infrastructure we need. But I think it really gets away from the fact that uh, it's very hard to implement something like that. For Kiwis here, yeah, they are free to leave and pursue opportunities that they see elsewhere in the world. And for that stock of expats that live elsewhere, they're certainly free to come back to New Zealand. So it's really hard to see how implementing a GPS or a population growth target would work in practice. The the focus now has certainly been targeting, right, prioritised job skills. Doesn't that make sense? Well, I think what happens politically is that as soon as we start to think, well, let's limit growth to, you know, 5%, or we're only going to less than 5% over a number of years, we're only going to less than 20 or 30,000 people a year, the politics for that just becomes quite tough. All of a sudden we go, well, we actually need some construction workers to build some things, we need some nurses for those kind of skills. It just becomes very hard for the government to actually sort of hold that line, even though they might want to limit um, population growth. Stay with us. I'm going to bring our panellists in now. Patrick, very interested in your thoughts on this. Uh, is this kind of thinking vital for our economy to flourish? I, I tend to agree with Curtin that maybe putting a putting a target on it is the wrong way to look at, look at it. Um, but if we go back to the conversation we were just having about supermarket and pricing, here's New Zealand, same size as Britain, which has 68 million people living in it, or the same size as Japan, which is 125 million people living in it. The, the so-called carrying capacity of, of the country is probably greater than five and a half million people. The, to me, the key issues are if the population is growing, are we investing adequately in the infrastructure to make sure that people have good lives here? And secondly, I just think it's a mistake to think of a population target as a, as some kind of economic question. It's, it's a social and political question. Mm. Um, you know, people who... Um, People who are texting in and saying they like the place small are probably also people who quite like supermarket goods to be cheaper. But what they're really saying, I think, is when people, when new groups of people arrive in New Zealand, it changes the country and it doesn't. It's not the place that I'm used to. Uh, lots of Pākehā people feel like that, and I, I, to those people, I often say, "Well, you try being Māori and uh, wonder how how." <laughs> how the country feels compared to how it was when, when you had the place to yourself. You know, this, the, these sorts of changes happen, but they they can be very wrenching socially. And uh, the pace at which the country grows mm. its population may be to some extent mediated by the extent to which, which the population that's here can live with it. Ronnie, are you all for flinging open oh. the doors? Um, yes, absolutely. And, and Patrick, I completely agree with um, what you and Curtin um, have, have been talking about. I mean, I'm the beneficiary of those doors being flung open in the late 1970s coming to New Zealand um, on the immigration scheme through, you know, with my dad's skills as a, as a mechanical engineer. And prior to that, my um, uncle who came in on the GP scheme, um, who, you know, but, you know, back then we weren't allowed to just come into Auckland. It was like, um, no, he was coming in. My uncle came in as a GP in Gisborne. Um, my dad's job was down in the Bay of Plenty. So I think with the infrastructure thing that we're talking about, as we know, we can't get housing for people that are here already, let alone another influx of a couple more million people. But if we actually go to the regions more, invest more in bringing um, immigrants to the regions, I think that is makes a richer environment for everyone. Everyone's not just condensed, you know, um, 
uh, crammed in in the in the major cities, um, and and yeah, I mean I, I'm a I'm a great recipient of that. I'm for it. I think we need more people. We need more diversity um, in this country. It adds to our rich tapestry. I've got to say, the three of you are in the minority. Going by the feedback that we're getting from the listeners, just a selection of it. More is not better. Go back to four million. Not quite sure how we're supposed to do that. Perpetual population growth is not the answer, says Derek. Um, Kerry says, and this is a very common theme coming through, we cannot cope with the population we have now with housing and infrastructure. Um, so uh, so just look back at the failed experiment by National of letting immigrants flood in. No housing, no wages, overcrowding and accommodation. No, let's grow organically. Other views, though, 8 million. We, yes, let's go for it. Need to create our own economy. A minimum of 12 million is required for a functioning economy. So we're getting lots of um, lots of opinions there. Um can I throw in a, 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 a smelly, strange theory? Of course theory? you can. Well, I think one thing that maybe I'd be interested to know how both Rwani and Curtin feel about this, but I think people are going to come here anyway. You know, if And that might be one of the things we have to prepare ourselves for. If we're in a warming world in which the tropics get warmer and more unlivable, People will move to the to the to the poles. In effect, you know, Scandinavia, New Zealand, parts of parts of the of the world, Argentina, for that matter, which are less, uh, you know, which have plenty of water, where you can still live a reasonable life, and and which are not getting the worst of climate change, are going to be where pe- populations move, and people may just come here whether we like it or not, and it may not always be in the in a planned fashion. Ruani, do you see that happening? Yeah, well, you know, I think we are really enticing to um, the world stage, you're right. So, um, yeah, you're right. We may not have a choice in it. People will come here anyway. Kurt, and just to, to wrap this yeah. up, and that, one of those points that I read out from the uh, the listeners, this issue of infrastructure and housing. Sure. I mean, goodness, housing prices are only just starting to come down. Wouldn't this see them go up uh, again? Are, are we equipped to handle millions more? Uh, yes, we are. So I think we look at the experience, say, the five years prior to, to COVID, and all the forecasts were saying, we'd look, don't expect that many more people to come. And, you know, that was proved wrong. So I think we need to invest a lot more in actually thinking about how many people are going to come, but also from our planning point of view of thinking, well, maybe we need to take a risk management approach and actually think, what infrastructure do we need if there's a few more people than what we have dialed into our kind of forecasts? I mean, immigrants bring lots of opportunity. They bring different skills and they bring different networks to the to people that are here already. And it would seem a shame if we want to actually push back against those opportunities by having a very sort of blunt tool, a very blunt uh, population target to, to follow. Sense Partners economist Dr Curtin Lees Ngamihinui, thank you very much. 27 minutes past four. Ruani, I promised that we would come back to what you've th- been thinking about. And here's, here's what you've been thinking about. Imagine a traditional city and consolidating its footprint, designing to protect and enhance nature. The line will be home to 9 million residents and will be built with a footprint of just 34 square kilometers. And we are designing it to provide a healthier, more sustainable quality of life. I just grabbed that from the uh, the little um, YouTube clip that you sent us uh, because I thought it painted the picture quite quite nicely. But tell us about the line, this magical city, and what it kind of ties in with what we've been talking about, really, in many ways today. Well, exactly, exactly. This is the smart city um, in uh, Saudi Arabia uh, called Neom. Um, and it's the line, which is, um, as the clip just said, 9 million residents. If you imagine... Um, 
a long vertical line that stretches out through the Saudi Arabian uh, desert and landscape. It's um, around just a little bit taller than the Empire State Building and uh, a little bit more than two rugby fields wide um, and from about here to Hamilton. And from top to bottom, it takes 20 minutes to get from those 170 kilometres. Um, you've got um, houses up to, I think, five to nine million in the smart city with, um, you know, low energy. It's like energy efficient, water efficient, um, like the most smartest city, futuristic city that you can imagine um, with the most amazing innovations of how it's, it's kind of a glimpse into the future, I guess, um, of how we can live um, and sustainably and and ecologically and all the rest of it. Um, I mean, it's the it's sort of the brainchild of the Saudi um, prince, which you know makes me a little bit nervous. Um, but um, it is you know it, it's just an insight, I guess, into a Jetsons like sort of future. Um, the Saudi prince uh, wants it done by uh, finished by twenty thirty, which is like when you have a look at what is actually involved here, it's amazing, you know, it's it's incredible to think that it could be done in eight years' time, um, considering they have failed to finish a skyscraper as well um, over there. But um, have a look online at the, at the YouTube, and it's just amazing, the line, um, Neon City. Patrick, mm. would you be signing up for it? <laughs> uh, well, I'm a journalist, so I don't really want to live in Saudi Arabia because somebody might come and chop me up with a bone saw. Um, well, exactly. I've, I've, uh, <laughs> I've I've done a, that's a the quick, one, thing. Uh, that's the one thing Patrick is the location but yeah well exactly and using my, my powers of googling uh, I've established that the current population of Saudi Arabia is 35 million so if it's to take 9 million people that's a quarter of the Saudi population assuming that the, not all a uh, quarter of the population of Saudi is going to move to this wonderful sounding place and that's probably great science and technology uh, that presumes that there must be 9 million people who want to live in Saudi Arabia, and I'm, I'm not sure those people exist. Um, however, maybe, maybe they do. I just uh, I, I think it's really interesting. It's very similar to some of the stuff which you see from the UAE, where they have enormous amounts of money to spend on these very experimental ideas. But I do think to some extent it's PR for what is basically a uh, brutal, um, you'd have to say fascist theocracy on the radio. Probably. Well, you've done it now, so yes. <laughs> <laughs> 